life feels like that sometimes. Aren't you proud of Luke? His voice is changing. Did you notice that? <laughs> Last service and this service, he cracked both services, you know. He looks 18. He's actually 14, you know. Really proud of him growing up like that. Anyway, we're here because God is so good, and we're here to love the Lord together. And in uh, this season, these seasons of life we pass through, you know, there are... Uh, there are just times when we wrestle and struggle terribly, and tears just come, don't they? We're familiar with tears. It doesn't matter who you are. GQ Magazine did an article about men and crying, and the author was a female, and she wrote, that male crying is not new. It's been happening for as long as men have had eyeballs, but it was almost always done behind at least three closed doors. So here are some some of GQ's rules about public crying of men. It's okay to cry if you're in extreme pain, like, say, a piano were dropped from a 50-story window on your foot. If you're going to cry from pain, it has to be at least eight on the pain scale. It's okay to cry at certain works of art or film. For instance, if you don't get misty eyes at Toy Story 3, you are a monster. Okay. It's almost weird if you don't sob the first time you hold your newborn baby. No shame in that, bro. It's definitely weird if you sob during a sports event. Although you can cry if you're actually one of the athletes out there on the field. But even then, you should only cry if you win. And if you're a fan, the rule here is much simpler. Never, ever cry. And never, ever start during, never, ever cry during an argument. Uh, the woman who wrote this article said, sorry, guys, but crying during an argument is kind of our thing. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter if you're young or old, rich or poor, uh, doesn't matter uh, any, about anything about the station of your life, your political persuasion, doesn't matter. We're all familiar with tears. In fact, we're too familiar with tears sometimes. And in these five weeks, we're dealing with various emotions that we deal with. And what we do with them, we started with doubt last week. And I said last week that we have a couple choices about doubts. And typically, what, a, what just a general religious person will do is just to stuff them. Because, for instance, anger doesn't seem like Jesus. So I can't be angry. I can't admit that, right? Or I, I shouldn't be so doubtful. And so I just sort of deny that. It's not Jesus-like. So religious people will often stuff their emotions. Uh, the converse of that, non-religious people will just dump their emotions. Doesn't matter who it is or who they're around, and they just live by their emotions. But there is a healthy way to, do, to deal with devotions. That, as Christ followers, we work through our emotions in, in, in the context of truth and in the presence of God himself. And he's the one that helps us be honest about our emotions and helps us to know how to healthfully deal with them. So we're going to look at a couple of psalms today. All, every, all five weeks we'll look at the psalms. The ones we look at today are about, they're about weeping, about shedding tears. Maybe you came in today after a tearful week. Maybe tucked away deeply in your heart today, there are some tears uh, themselves crying to get out, but you won't let them out. Or maybe, maybe you're just not in that season right now, but I assure you, you will be someday if you're not today. 
This, uh, these psalms, remember, are an ancient songbook. They're written by various people, most of them by David. Uh, he's the primary author, but not all. For instance, the one we look at today in Psalm 126 is not uh, written, uh, not attributed to anyone. Uh, so some have suggested Hezekiah wrote it. Some Ezra, the scribe, wrote it. We don't know. But it's a type of song called a psalm of lament. Lament, of course, is when we cry out, when we have a, a painful thing we're going through. And scholars will sometimes vary in their opinions on which psalms could be in, should be in what category. But they all agree that there are more psalms of lament than any other type of psalms. And so this one is Psalm 126 uh, we'll start with today. Here's what it says. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. So what do we do with this? What do we do with our tears? Three things. First of all, expect them. Expect them. The psalm starts, when the Lord brought back the captive to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. What's going on here? Well, the context is important to understand. God's people had been taken away into captivity by the Babylonians. The Babylonians became the world power. They came into the southern kingdom of Israel, and they took away the cream of the crop of God's people, a thousand miles away to the capital city of Susa and the surrounding areas. And now, Babylonian empire is done, and now it's the Medo-Persian empire with Cyrus on the throne. And Cyrus is a softer king, and he allows, 70 years later, he allows the Jews to make their way toward, toward their home city, the, the city of their faith, and to rebuild it. And so verse 1 is about, we were like men who dreamed. I mean, this is too good to be true. Can you believe we're actually free to go back and to rebuild our homeland, to rebuild our city? This is, this is great news. That's what this is all about at the very beginning here. But then the second stanza begins in verse 4 this way. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the desert. Sometimes life is like a desert. For those being brought back to Jerusalem, my hunch here, the way the song goes, is that they're in the desert. They started their journey. They can't believe they can go back home. But it's a little trickier than they thought. It's harder than they imagined. There are a lot of things. We don't know what's happening. Maybe they're being threatened by enemies on their journey. Maybe it's critters in the desert. Maybe they are suffering bites in the desert. Maybe, can you imagine a thousand years, I mean a thousand miles on that trek and that day 3,000 years ago or so, 2,500 years ago, and, and a thousand miles, how long a journey that would take? You have to imagine food maybe, there's shortage of food or water when they're traveling. It could be any number of reasons that they, they're experiencing desert life. And they're saying now, God, restore our fortunes. We're not there yet. We're in the journey. It's what life is like so much, isn't it? That we're in the journey. We are hope-filled. We've turned the corner. 
Our life is starting to come together again. We've gotten on the right track, and now it feels like a desert. Why am I struggling? Why am I here? He's crying out. The psalmist is crying out to God on behalf of the people. The point is, even if God is in your life, expect tears. It's part of the journey that we have to go. There's this Christian myth that if I'm a good Christian, God won't let bad things happen to me. And that is pure religious myth. Uh, There are tears in life because this is a fallen world. And sometimes the tears that we cry are a result of our own actions, our own disobedience, our own past things that we've done. And the tears continue. The pain continues because it doesn't mean I'm not forgiven. It just means there's still residue, right? That's what happens. Sometimes then the tears come on. Sometimes we're just victims and just bad things happen. And some people seem to suffer and have to endure more than other people. Why? I don't know. I don't have answers for that. But I want to suggest to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will weep more than those who don't. Here's why. When Ezekiel the prophet was writing about a future time when the Messiah would come into the world and establish his kingdom, when salvation would come to Israel and beyond Israel to the nations, this is what he says. You know the verse well in Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Now, it may mean several things, but it means at least this, that when you become a follower of Jesus... Something happens to your heart in a way that becomes softer. You become vulnerable. You become movable. I mean, have have you welled up with tears reading about these boys in this cave in Thailand? I mean, every time I read it, I think of those parents and those boys, and I'm so moved. Last service, I said at 10 o'clock, they're supposed to start bringing one out. And somebody down here said, there are two out already. Some woman back there said, there are seven out. And I said, who's listening to the news during church? <laughs> and I, anybody got a report after seven? Okay, well, the last we report, seven are out by now. Praise God for that, right? We're thankful. Because when we become followers of Jesus, see, before him, we can be some, become so hardened, aren't we? And, and our attitude can be, well, they made their bed, let them sleep in it. That's sort of, when Christ comes in, suddenly, you just love people, Period. You care about people. It doesn't matter if they're a follower of Jesus or not. You hurt for people in the world, regardless of, of whether they know Christ or not. That we're moved. And so we, 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 we shed tears in any number of situations because of the different kinds of pains in the world. We feel differently. We're less harsh than we once were. Because of Jesus, he wept over the city. They wept because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, not praying, I mean, not crying simply over Lazarus, but what death had done to his father's world. He cried when he was crucified, cried out to God himself because, you know, he, he knew he was forsaken by his father. He, he is so acquainted with all of this. He's a man of sorrows, the Bible says. He's acquainted with grief. So it's unrealistic to think that tears come less If you're a Christ follower, I think they come more. And we'll cry about two things. You know, if we're we're not prepared, we'll cry about what we're weeping about, and we're crying about that we have to cry at all. And Jesus helps us with that. So uh, expect them. Second of all, uh, invest them. 
Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6 read this way. Those those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Now, at first, this doesn't seem so unusual because uh, we may not be farmers, most of us, but we've got even pitiful gardens, at least, right? You know, if I get a tomato, I rejoice over the one, right? Um, but, but we're familiar with, with, with planting a little garden and watching it grow. We, we like that. But the interesting thing about this is that he says here, he goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow. Now, why is that? Why does a farmer go out weeping? Is it maybe he discovers the task is more arduous than he thought it was going to be? More burdensome or the soil isn't ready and he has to pause and prepare the, I don't know, but, it, but I... I Remember that the Psalms, along with four other Old Testament books, are poetic language. Now, not poetry as we know poetry. We come to church, and today we have sung poetry in in our music, and we will continue to do that today. We're used to a certain rhythm in poetry, uh, rhyming in poetry. We don't speak in poetry to one another, uh, but when we sing, we usually do. Uh, This is Hebrew poetry, not that we're acquainted with, but because it's that style in, in the ancient Hebrew language, uh, it's got a different kind of imagery to it. And so the picture here is of, of sowing, sowing our tears, doing something with them. Uh, we don't avoid tears. We don't, express, we don't simply express tears, but we plant them. We plant them. We sow them in anticipation of what God will bring as a harvest if we plant them properly and we plant them well. See, your, your tears and mine are opportunities for us to grow deeper and higher, to become richer, stronger disciples because we have walked with Christ, because we've handled them in faith and planted them. Remember that song we used to sing uh, in here? I'm planting my, uh, I'm, I'm trading my sorrows. I'm trading my sorrows. For what? Uh, for the joy of the Lord. That's it, right? I'm trading my sorrows for the joy of the Lord. Well, that is true, but it doesn't go far enough. It's not just that we're trading our sorrows, but we're investing our sorrows. Now, will our tears automatically produce some good things? Yeah. If I plant a garden and ignore it, will something happen? Yeah, probably. But it won't be nearly as healthy as if I tend it, I weed it, I water it, I do something with it carefully through the season to have a better harvest, right? It's the same thing with tears. If you just let them be, something good can happen. But if you do it really well, if you watch them carefully, God's going to do even greater things. Psalm 30 verse 5 says that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Tears don't just merely give way to joy. They produce joy. So don't just wait for the tears to go away. Don't wait for them to subside. In fact, if you've had a tearful week, if right now you're going through a tearful season, your being here in the context of worship with God's people is a planting action. You are continuing to worship God and trust him even though you can't see his hand and you don't know what he's doing. Second Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light and momentary troubles 
are achieving for us. They're producing for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So they're doing something good. Trust God for that. Third, pray them. Pray your tears. Expect them, invest them, and pray them. So again, these psalms are laments, and they're composed in a, in a spirit of, tear, of being tearful and, and praying through those tears, uh, and healthy transformation emerges. And for that to happen, if you're going through a tearful season or when you do, here are three things to pray. First of all, pray your tears in his grace. Remember the grace of God and how far God's grace has gone to rescue you. You know, you come into church, and there are any number of reasons you cry. I have people say to me, uh, why is it every time I come to church, I cry? Because you're probably a stuffer. You know, we stuff. And then we come and get in the atmosphere of worship and praise, and we see lyrics on the screen that, that, that tell me what my heart is feeling that I can't express that way. And there's this little fissure that forms, that appears in my heart. The deep recess is there, and suddenly it becomes a chasm, and the tears flow out. That's what happens. That's why we need to worship, because we are laid bare before the Lord. We are naked before him. He sees everything, and it is good to cry in church. I've had people say, I I can't go to church because I cry. So that's exactly what's needed. Don't be afraid of those. There are painful divorce tears and bankruptcy tears and rebellious child tears and newborn baby tears. I mean, not the baby, you. And there's cancer tears, all kinds of health tears, right? There are all kinds of tears. And the best thing we can do is trust his grace. So the, the end of Psalm 39 says this. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. For I dwell with you as an alien. I don't know what that means necessarily. It could mean. I've thought about it from every different angle. Commentators have different, different kinds of views. That Some say that it simply means next to who God is. You know, we're so far from him. You know, he's so different from us and unique from us. Some say the psalmist is just feeling distant from him. He feels like an outcast. And that probably is where I lean because of what he goes on to say. A stranger, as all my fathers were. And then what he, look what he writes. Look away from me that I may rejoice again before I depart and am no more. God, just turn your face away. I think I would be happier if you weren't looking at me. Boy, does that sound like a model prayer to you? It doesn't to me. You know, many of our prayers, I mean, many of the Psalms begin with laments. They cry out to God, but they close with great hope. Like Psalm 16 closes, you have no, you've made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. It starts crying, ends like that. Psalm 17, the same way. It closes, and I in righteousness, when I see your face, when I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. 39, Psalm 39 begins with cries. It ends with, don't look at me. I want to be happy. What kind of prayer is that? Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? It sounds like Peter's, uh, depart from me, Lord. 
Because he just didn't know how to handle Jesus' miracles and what he did. Now, this isn't a model way to pray. Just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's a model for us. But what it does tell us is that God always understands. He always understands. I hope you never say that to God. I hope you never feel like you have to. But if it does come out that way, just know that Jesus, the Son of God, was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. He's been in our shoes. He's been tempted in every way that we've been tempted, yet is without sin. And, and he understands. So don't try to control it all. Don't try to package it well. Don't try to, don't try to be dishonest before God because he knows what's there anyway. You're free to say what you have to say. It's an amazing thing. His grace will cover us when our prayers are so self-centered and so small and so me-centered that I, would have, that I would have the audacity to say, God, don't look at me. I don't want you right now. He understands. Trust his grace. Then plant your tears at the cross. Plant up at the cross. How, how can God understand? How can he even let me speak this way at all? Because he entered our pain. Because he suffered. He knows our grief. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, he cried, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Do you know Brown University researchers have developed a software uh, that, that analyzes the cries of newborn babies? And they have developed it so that they can take the volume, the uh, decibels, the intonation, a couple other features, and there's a, dis there's a slight distinction between cries so that they can be alerted to the cry of a child who has some neurological issues and address it before they even know there are issues. Now, if God who created us, who created medical people with those kinds of minds and brilliance can develop the software, what does that tell you about the God who gave them that ability? That he knows every one of your tears. He's able to decipher if they're fake, fraudulent, or not. How deeply they run in your heart and your life. How, how, how deeply you hurt and feel through your pain. He knows that. And therefore, he's the best one that can guide you. You go back to these Thai boys. You know, you don't want me going to that cave to get them. And I dare so most of you wouldn't have the ability. What do you do? You call the experts because they're the ones, those seals, those people of great courage are the ones equipped to get them out safely. That's who our God is. He's the one, the only one fully qualified to lead us out through our tears. I hope you know that today. I hope you know that. And you know what this will, by the way, I should also say with this, you know, when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the abandoned one. God actually did turn his face away from his son on the cross of Christ so that whenever you prayed a lousy prayer like, turn away from me, God, he'll say to you, if you're his child, sorry, I'm not going anywhere. He abandoned his own son so that he would never abandon you and me when our prayers are immature and unthinking. Aren't you thankful for a God like that? And see, what that, three things that'll do when you're at the cross with your prayers. It'll free you from guilt. 
Because immediately we start thinking, I'm guilty, God's punishing me. I'm not saying he doesn't sometimes. But sometimes there's a good guilt that God is using to bring us back to him, right? You don't have to stay in that kind of guilt. You'll be free from self-pity because that's tends to what we do. When we're in tears, we feel sorry for ourselves. We play the victim. We get self-centered and small, ultra-sensitive, easily hurt, think God's against us, everybody's against me. But if you go to the cross, if you really see Jesus there, you say to him, you suffered for me. How can I not persevere for you? That's who I want to be for you, Jesus. And you'll be free from impatience. Tears are very impatient. We want them to be gone. And you can think you're healed from something. You can go through a divorce and six months later, boy, I'm glad that's over. And then the tears start falling again sometime when you least expect. Death. That happens to death all the time. You think you get past the death of a loved one. And a year later, you find yourself crying on their birthday or on your anniversary, on the day of the miscarriage, whatever it is. You think you're done. It's still there. So stay focused on the cross. And then plant your tears in glory. Plant them in glory where God is. Some of you knew of Ben Harmon, who died about 5.30 Friday. I got to know Ben. I get the privilege. It's a privilege officiating at his funeral service this Friday. 20 years old, made it one semester at Purdue in a brief season of remission. He's had pediatric, a rare pediatric cancer the last uh, two years. We've shed tears together, Ben and I. And uh, about a week or so ago, I said, I think it's time for us to talk about heaven, don't you think? So we read the scripture about heaven, what it's going to be like. I'll tell this Friday, I'm sure. I mean, most of you won't be there. Um, and he's, he'd cry tears. He'd, he'd say to me, I see, these, these tears aren't for me. They're not for me. Don't cry for me. I, I cry for my family and how they're going to do when I'm gone. And he said, how am I going to be there and not cry, worrying about them? And I said, I don't know, Ben, but I do know this. The Bible says, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. And maybe that means there's no tears in heaven. Eric Clapton said there were going to be. But if there are, our God is the perfect counselor. And his presence will be all we need to be at rest and at peace. Do you know him that way? Do you know God now that way that whenever you shed tears over every, anything in your life, there is a place to be, and the place is a person, Jesus Christ. There's nobody like him. So all these different kinds of psalms, but if you've read the psalms through many times, you know the last five are all praise. There's no thanksgiving. There's no uh, lamenting. It's all praise. And Eugene Reed Peterson writes this. I like what he says. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experience it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. 
There are intimations of this throughout the Psalms. This is not to say other prayers are inferior to praise, only that all prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Don't rush it. It may take years, decades even, before certain prayers arrive at the hallelujahs at Psalms 146 through 150. Not every prayer is capped off with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalter is the true guide, are not. Prayer is always reaching toward praise and will finally arrive there. So our lives fill out in goodness. Earth and heaven meet in an extraordinary conjunction. Clashing symbols announce the glory. Blessing. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Even in talking about tears, oh God, some eyes are filled with them in this room. They're that close to the surface. And I'm so thankful, Father, you know every one of them. The tears, the people, the heart, the journey. Oh, like streams in the desert. How we need you. And we understand that there are tears yet to be shed. I pray we won't fear them, Father. I pray that we won't shun them. That we don't think that the healthiest thing to do is just have a stiff upper lip. But we will take these tears, Father. And we will pray through them. We will praise through them. We will serve through them. We will love through them. We will give ourselves away through them. We will trust through them. We will never give up through them. Because we want to know that day when there is not, nothing but praise. You are worthy. And you have made that day possible through the cross of Jesus. So, Father, for the tears shed today in this room, Thank you for wiping them away. And thank you for hope in the desert. We trust you. We believe in you. We love you.